In this podcast, I speak with Tatiana about COP28 and how it feels to be a part of such an international policy conference, albeit on the sidelines. It's a fascinating insight into the fringes of such events and how people there sense and perceive their own roles and places. The term in the car park is mentioned, and I wonder how much clearer could the intentions of the organisers have been? As if to be even clearer, we go from COP28 in the Arab Emirates, an oil state, to COP29, another oil state with blood on its hands and murderous military drone controllers in its hands too. Thank you, Tatiana, as always, for your great input, for your arguments and observations, and for your time. There are important links in the podcast notes to the BOSS class from The Economist, the World Ocean Summit 2024, and Harvard Kennedy School's Women's Network. Please check them out. Two and a mic, clocking out. Enjoy. I'm joined again by Tatiana, who hasn't been around for a long time because Tatiana is extremely busy. Is that not the case, Tatiana? I don't think so, but nice to be back. How are you, Zach? Yeah, very good, very good, um, especially as we have a chance to chat. And what's also quite funny, people probably don't realise, as in, I'm not actually friends with everybody who I uh, have a podcast with, uh, because I don't know so many of the people that I have podcasts with, but you actually do know, you are a friend. Um, and, you know, considering that, we hardly ever talk. Um, so, I mean, that should be a bit of an indicator as to how busy you are. Um but yeah, there you go. But are you well in London and so on? Yes, I am. I am. I am just sort of, um, you know, getting back into the flow of um, of, of work and, um, and 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 life because, of course, everyone took a nice, much-needed break over the holidays. Although they seem very far away right now, but we're only into the third week of January. So yeah, just um, trying to stick to the resolutions that we made while also managing everything that we uh, continue to manage. Okay. All <laughs> right. So your resolutions, that definitely means a, a dry January um, and no parties, right? That'd be ridiculous. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, Let's be realistic. Enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I apologize. I don't sit unrealistic, but also I think that I, I mean, my personal view on dry January is I think it's great for people that want to do it. And um, if they feel like they need to do it, then that's something that people should do. I would never take I would never sort of take that away from others. But um, you should, you know, everything in moderation. So if you break up your year and not drink every single day and then you wouldn't need to do a whole month of dry January because that's not actually helping you, in my opinion, at least. Anyway, I'm no, no. doctor, but that's my opinion. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um but uh, yeah, so let's talk about some of the things which have kept you out of, uh, well, incommunicado at least. Um, one of these things is, as with the others, I suspect, um, more than uh, justifiable reason. You have uh, continued work with the World Ocean Programme, and you are actually going to tell us when your next uh, conference is, I think. Yeah, uh, so the World Ocean Summit is coming up. It's actually around the corner, 11th to the 13th of March. It's one of the things that's keeping me busy. Um, it's going to be taking place in Lisbon, Portugal. Again, uh, we hosted it there in 2023. Um, and it's gearing up to be an excellent event. We've got over 180 speakers confirmed. Well, almost confirmed, but we're going to have over 180 speakers. I think we're on about 150 at the moment. Um, and um, expecting over one and a half thousand people from all over the world. Last year, we had something like 87 countries registered to attend. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's the sort of meeting point for everyone in the ocean ecosystem from the academics to the business leaders to the um, 
um, to the investors, uh, the philanthropic community, NGOs, and of course, um, the multilateral, bilateral institutes, and, and let's not forget the policymakers. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a great meeting point for many. We're launching some exciting programs at the summit. Um, can't go into too much detail about them, but um, there's um, there's going to be one on um, there's one research program on marine protected areas, and another one that's going to be on how ocean observation data streams can mitigate climate change. So really, sort of. Um, unique and one-of-a-kind um, research projects that we're going to be launching um, at the summit and um, hopefully they'll be helping um, solve some of the big questions and challenges that we have. Mm. Okay well all right that's fair obviously that you can't talk about more, some of the more secretive uh, projects that you're going to be uh, either announcing um, or launching at this year's event uh, but can you tell us about one or two maybe uh, of the successes from last year's event? Um, oh my gosh you're making me go back in time I, now. I'm so me, sorry I'm so no, sorry. No it's fine let me think let me think well do you know what I mean uh, there was a lot that happened. I think what was really interesting about last year's event, I mean, it was the first one we had hosted since COVID. So it was the first time everybody had come back together, um, which in itself was a miracle because for the last, <laughs> from 2021, we couldn't run the 20 event, 2020 event, but 2021, 2022, everything happened online. And while it, you know, it was great, um, it's very hard to have and you have to have a lot of bilateral meetings um, in person. I mean, some of these conversations, they just they just it's not the same. And I know a lot of people question, why do you have to be in person to have these meetings? Why does everyone have to travel to one place? What a waste of um, what a waste. Um, but it, actually, they're quite helpful because having those one to one meetings, building those relationships are important in terms of some of the key takeaways. Well, um, I think. The high seas um, negotiations uh, were taking place on the sidelines of our summit that was happening in New York at the same time. So there were a lot of conversations about the impact and the importance of those. And it, we had the deputy director at the t uh, of the World Trade Organization at our summit talking about this, um, which was um, you know important and having those stakeholders in the room. We had a lot of financial institutions participate, and and actually they were sort of we, they were hosting sessions on the sidelines asking um, the wider investment community questions to kind of help um, address sort of um, big questions that they have around developing financial models. So I think a, a lot of those types of conversations were really interesting and it was, um, you know, it was helping to troubleshoot. And in fact, what it's inspired us to do is to run what we call in 2024 how-to sessions, um, which are going to be interactive panel discussions, well, workshops, where we'll be troubleshooting through certain types of questions, like, for example, how to implement the High Seas Treaty, um, how to create, um, you know, how to create an MPA and so on. So, yeah, they should be interesting. Um, you know, everyone that comes to the event is an expert in their own capacity and the ability to sort of allow the audience to interact with the speakers and vice versa um, will be help, very helpful and it sort of leads to solutions rather than just um, a talk shop, which is what tends to happen at a lot of events where basically mm. panel speaks, they get off next panel, but you kind of walk away not really knowing how to re how to act. And I think that that's the important thing we need to we need to have takeaways so that people can think about what comes next. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's uh, that's always been one of the uh, the issues that I've had uh, with some of the very, very low level uh, conversations that I've participated in. Um, I always feel as though whenever people come together, they make these wonderful decisions. And and as as you say, when you're actually together, there is a certain um, dynamic that is created by people coming together, working together, this atmosphere, this electricity, this vibe, this energy. Um, which is kind of uh, transferred from from one to another. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that once the event is over, that energy kind of dissipates and uh, people go back to things as they were before um, and, and nothing solid uh, happens thereafter. So hopefully with with what you're saying, um, that's not going to be the case with this. But I mean, the World Ocean Programme, Okay, I, obviously I'm not a specialist in the history of these kinds of initiatives, but I don't think it's 
too old is it um in, in its existence um it is actually um it's been around this is the 11th year we're running the world ocean summit and that's what i mean that's not very long um as in well, no. what, what you've done though what I, i'm trying to get to a compliment i'm not criticizing <laughs> yeah they're like god you've got no history um no but i think in in 11 years to have uh yeah i mean you've got a lot of important political participation you've brought so many specialists together so many important organizations together um mm-hmm. that kind of suggests to me that uh, there's a, a serious amount of work going on in the background is what i'm trying to get at basically yeah i mean look for context 11 years ago nobody was really talking about the ocean frankly speaking and what we we didn't really understand so you, there would be silent conversations of course the ngo community and and many scientists were sort of pushing forward agendas on on these issues but it wasn't something that either grasped the um the public's attention and or many of the policymakers or business leaders who didn't really understand the role that the ocean plays with climate and even you know you, you and you still see this today there is still a massive knowledge gap uh when it comes to um when it comes to when we when we refer to the um sustainable ocean economy or talking about the health of our ocean um the role that we play as 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 individuals and an impact on climate so um yeah we when we started this it was obviously long before my time but um we were approached by two philanthropic organizations that wanted to put this on the global agenda um obviously our paper was well placed to do this given our global reach and you know i think we've we've helped succeed in in that effort there are of course a lot of other organizations now doing their own thing um as well to push this agenda forward um there's a lot of other um multilateral events taking place around the world um there's ocean, there's now ocean science events events and there's um there's the un decade um uh event coming up in April in Barcelona there's our ocean which has been running for the last few years it's actually under the auspices of the US state department um but hosted by different countries each year um there's the UN ocean conference which happens every few years the next one will be in France in 2025 uh the Prince Albert Foundation runs their own ocean summit in Monaco every year um and we all collaborate with each other by the way i think that that's something to um to note that we are all collaborating and working together it's not as if it's we're all doing something in silo which um is great to see because i think we moved into the era of collaboration and partnerships versus sort of everybody working in silos which is what we used to see a lot of yeah well, i mean partnerships is also one of the uh, sustainable development goals so mm-hmm. um it's it's good to see at least one of them bearing fruit yeah okay cool i'm going to move it along purely because we've got so many things to talk about and the main topic um is cop28 but before we get to that just a, a brief interlude you went to india in what capacity was that um uh, event was that something sort of private that, that you did for for your one of your many many interests or was that something else uh so that was um on behalf wearing my um hat as co-president of the Harvard Kennedy School Women's Network so the, the Harvard Kennedy School Women's Network is a 501c3 it's a non-profit um registered in the US it represents something like 7800 um alumni from the Harvard Kennedy School and um the organization was set up back in 2016 i took over the co-presidency with my um with my peer Farah Arabi last year so india was hosting the w20 uh, the g20 last year they were the um, they were holding the presidency for the g20 and um one of the engagement groups the women's 20 which is the official um gender equality engagement group for the g20 approached us about partnering with them as a as a knowledge partner um on the efforts of the w20 because um there are different engagement groups who then go off and put together policy recommendations that are put forward to the g20 and so we were invited as knowledge partners 
We um, took on a, an advisory role. Of course, the delegate countries um, are the ones that have the sort of, you know, they, they lead the negotiations. They um, they sort of um, finalize what, what goes into the final communique, et cetera. Um, but we, like many other knowledge partners, um, sort of provided input. And one of the key areas, so there were a couple of, there were a couple of areas that we had um, critical input on care economy, which was actually something that wasn't initially included in in the original um, sort of breakdown of tasks uh, task force for the G, for the W20. Um, and then the other one was entrepreneurship and then climate and gender. Um, and given my background, I was asked to lead the zero draft um, policy recommendations on uh, gender and climate. And so we you know, we, we we tapped into our wonderful member community. Um, we have so many sort of well-accomplished people working on a lot of these in a lot of these areas and then um, pulled together some of our initial recommendations, which were then reviewed by the by the sort of W20 delegates. And then we had input into the sort of additional iterations of that. Um, and it was great to see so many of our early recommendations adopted into that and working with the W20. And in fact, they've Brazil, which is going to be holding the presidency for the G20 this year, has already invited us to once again become a knowledge partner of the W20. So we're looking forward to working with Team Brazil like we did India. And I have to say, Team India were incredible. Um, the, the level of attention, the seriousness of the of how they took the whole process um, the hospitality. India is such a beautiful country. The people are wonderful. Um, it was really a it was a wonderful experience, um, you know, and it, and it was an opportunity because I've always been saying to my friends, I'm going to visit you, I'm going to visit you. And time is always the challenge. So being able to go to India twice in a year was a real treat for me. Yeah, respect. Um, I saw some of the the follow up to the event um, with all of the the interactions across uh, social media platforms, and uh, yeah, it seems so. You all really got on nice and cozily, but uh, at the same time, you also did some uh, some sterling work. So um, yeah, it's something that we should also keep an eye out for in the future, I guess, uh, depending on what kind of projects that you lead um, and where it will go. Yeah, I think I think. You know, I'll be honest with you. I think the um, the proof is in the pudding, and I think it's the action, turning these things into action. Like, how do you? So we were very lucky because actually the G20 um, leaders they they adopted a lot of what we had put in our um, in the final W20 communique. They actually um, included it in theirs, and I think that that's a great achievement. It's it's but then it's like the how do you implement it? And the G20 is a very influential group of countries. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's critically important to turn the the recommendations into into action. So, talking of turning uh, recommendations into action, we we come to COP twenty eight, which you <laughs> also participated in. I did. Um, I went on behalf of the Economist Group. Obviously, we're using my um, work at on the ocean front. Um, it was great. It was my first COP. Um, I didn't quite know what to expect, but, you know, I knew I obviously have experience having been to Dubai a few times. So I know that they weren't going to sort of do short change on this on this opportunity. And they hosted it at the Expo Center. So this is where they hosted the Dubai Expo, which was supposed to be taking place in 2020, but ended up taking place in 2021. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was. It was very chaotic. It was very busy. There was so much going on. The space, the area where they hosted it was huge. Um, I mean, feedback I had from other people was that um, Egypt and Glasgow were much smaller, so they were easier to get around. But even then, it was just there was so much happening all at the same time that it was hard to kind of get from A to B and kind of attend everything. But um, what was great to see was that the ocean community was there in full force. Um, you know, pushing the agenda forward. And again, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, there, there is a disconnect between uh, climate and ocean. So, you know, pushing that agenda forward is um, was great to see. Um, I gave a presentation on the sidelines um, at one of the side events at, at COP with um, with a number of other people. 
um, and sort of focusing on the kind of work that we're doing, the research that we're doing and how we're contributing to transitioning to a sustainable ocean economy um, and meeting so many other like minded people. Uh, it did feel sometimes it was a phrase that kept coming up. Actually, it was by the um, by the UN um, Ocean Ambassador who kept saying we're in the car park, we're in the car park, because the nature pavilion was all the way at the bottom, you know, quite somewhat removed. And so it did feel like we were still in the car park trying to get our way into the, um, you know, and be front and centre of the um, of the of the sort of COP agenda. But the good news is that um, marine ecosystems and the ocean were included in, in the sort of final um, communiques again. So that was great to see um, what that actually translates into remains to be seen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's um, it was a great experience. Obviously, when I was an observer there, I was not part of the negotiations. Um, only that's reserved for country delegates, of course. Sure. Okay. Now, obviously, because of your uh, numerous uh, diplomatic hats uh, that you wear, um, at least for the purposes of the conversations that we have together, um, I will tone down any kind of uh, opinions that I may have. Um, especially as you, you're not uh, somebody who represents um, any of the, as far as I'm concerned, the bad guys um, in any of the uh, climate arguments. Um, mm. But there were a number of controversies with regards to COP28. And what, what I find really, on the one hand, quite amusing, on the other hand, um, not really much of a surprise. About a couple of hours ago, you, you posted uh, an essay uh, on social media written by, and I've made a note uh, of Paul this. Pullman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where he says that it is extremely important that uh, climate change policy um, is intimately uh, engaged and irrevocably linked to human rights. Uh, yes. that, that's correct, yeah? Yeah, yeah. He talks about the fact that you can't have the one conversation without the other. Indeed. OK, very good. All right. So on that basis, so to have uh, COP28 in uh, the United Arab Emirates, um, but not only that, to have COP29 in Baku, um, <laughs> a tyrannical regime uh, with numerous human rights violations, not to mention uh, the extremely disturbing activities that they carried out against uh, the Armenians uh, in Artsakh. Uh, not very long ago. Um, I think a lot of people need to read this essay. 100% would agree with you on this. Um, I think I think if anyone is quite serious, I mean, and you know, I, I just wanted to read, he's not suggesting that, you know, let's all skip COP29 because he clearly says that it's it's something that needs to happen. Although I'll be honest with you, even in Dubai, most people were focused, most people's attention is focused on COP30 because that's where we where we're going to see some key things coming into play. But um, you still there's still a lot of negotiations that need to take place. And then that and COP29 is the arena to do that. It's just how do you do that when you've got this sort of backdrop, as you've um, as you've put it? Um, and I just don't think like, you know, and I and I speak to people who are not involved in this space, you know, your your Jane and John's on the street and it's very hard, you know, especially as we live in this very polarized world um, where everyone's skeptical about something and, you know, everyone's cynical. Not everyone, but most, you know, a lot of, well, not everyone and not most, but you meet a lot of cynics. Um, and it's very hard trying to convince them that there's, um, you know, that th these are genuine efforts, that the world is trying to work together, that there are all these, you know, that businesses do care and so on and so forth when, we overlook certain things like where we're going to host an event like this. So it is it is problematic. Um, but also, I mean, there's, there's, the, there's the argument to be had, which is you can't leave people out because you need you need everyone <laughs> to you need everyone's consensus. But look, if you know, it's like with with, you know, and, and this is the one of the big challenges we have that, you know, any country can stand up and say, I veto this, I veto that. And you need you need a consensus. I mean, one of the reasons why like things like the fishing subsidies agreement took so many years 
and they're still not really finalized, frankly speaking, um, is because, you know, obviously country interests meant that the negotiation process became even tougher. Um, and then you have to try and find a consensus with everyone. Um, so, you know, leaving them out in the cold um, isn't necessarily the right solution either. Um, so I'm not saying so what I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't really have an answer for this. But I think that <laughs> there needs to be some pressure on them to guarantee certain rights, um, guarantee freedom. I mean, you know, I've I've been told that it can be very controlled over there in the way in which um, the reporting is done. So people would need to they, they we need to address these things. We can't just ignore it. But it would have been I'll be honest with you, it would have been a hell of a lot easier if we had just, you know, if everyone had just agreed to host this somewhere where you wouldn't have had these challenges. And then you can bring all the different parties together um, and still have a constructive discussion. And then you don't need to sort of host it in these awkward places where it's awkward for half the international community and um, okay for others. You know, it's just thinking about that. But this is my opinion. I remember speaking to a friend who's not very well versed on the human rights violations of, of, um, of Baku and Azerbaijan, but then sort of saying, oh, well, this and that. And so, you know, everyone everyone has their own opinion about who's a human rights violator and who's doing what and which country's good and which country's bad. And, you know, you, you end up in a rabbit hole of my plight is worse than yours. Who's deciding? I mean, it's it's a rabbit hole is, is what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, if anybody's listening to this um, and thinks that I'm of the opinion that, oh, no, keep it in the UK, let it stay in the UK the whole time. No, I completely am aware of uh, a lot of the human rights violations that the UK is responsible for, has been, continues to be. Um, I am not Eurocentric. I'm not Western democracy centric. Um, I'm fully aware of this. But I, I, I see I see the argument that you put forward. We should not exclude people. That's true. Um, but not excluding them doesn't mean going to their homes. Um, as in, if if I want to talk to somebody who I don't like, I'm not going to walk into their kitchen, sit at their table um, and, and shake hands and pretend everything is hunky-dory. What I feel is that by giving, especially human rights violators, especially countries which are responsible for uh, so much uh, of the emissions which we have recognized, which are huge contributors to climate change. We're giving them opportunities to sort of wash over that. They're, they're yeah. showing themselves out. You know, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, they start clapping. Hey, look what we've done, blah, blah, blah. You've done bugger all. Um, no, and, and I think... Yeah, go and, on. I, I I agree with you. And actually, I want to address something because I think that there's an oversimplification that takes place when we talk about, you know, yes, we don't always make, like I say, we as in Britain, we don't always make the right foreign policy decisions, right? I'm not saying that we we, we always get it right or that we do get it right. Um, and each person has an opinion on this issue. However, the thing that everyone always seems to forget and I love it because it's everybody who's who's complaining about these issues, but they're doing it in the comfort of their homes in the UK, um, and they know that there's no there's no record there's no um, recommendations for for what for what you're saying because nobody, you know, we live in a free country, and I think that sometimes it's easy to forget the wonders. I mean, until you've lived in a restricted country where your speech is really restricted, where your ideas and your thoughts cannot be put forward. You will never understand what it means to be living such a limited life. And I think that we don't always get it right, but at least we get to live our lives with dignity and the way in which we want to. And I think that that's something that sometimes we forget. I'm not saying it's always been perfect. I'm not saying that it's always been great for everyone. But on the whole, you know, in the comforts of the UK or or wherever, you have the luxury of having of being able to have an opinion um, and no one reprimanding you for it. True. Um, I, I would just add to that that um, a lot of those freedoms um, and uh, privileges uh, are enjoyed at the cost of other people's freedoms and uh, the lack of privileges um, as a as a result. Um, the capitalism has to always exploit 
someone right so that's just the way that it works but you and i will we, we've always said we're going to have a conversation about this uh topic but we we never find the opportunity of doing that but we will do we'll come we're, we'll, on the, we're on different sides of the of the of the debate but we should exactly that's that's why you know i i love talking to people who um i i agree with but i i especially love having um a, an argument with people um, yesterday i was i interacted with a guy on on twitter and i i, I put forward a couple of normal questions he then mm -hmm. went and looked at my profile and he responded to me and said uh, you're a socialist i'm not going to talk to you and he blocked me um, Are you serious? And, yeah i hadn't even said anything i hadn't insulted him at all um and that's that's the, yeah you're a socialist <laughs> yeah. i'm not talking to you um and i thought okay that's that's one way of doing it um so yeah we you and i don't have to agree um but I, i'm looking forward to having a conversation with you about this because whatever happens i know that i'm going to walk away from that conversation having my immense respect for you um and, and i well, hope uh, let, me, um, yeah. Yeah, let me tell you i mean it's it's interesting that you bring this up because i i've had people sort of say to me oh i can't be friends with you because you're not a socialist and i think to myself <laughs> jesus how how like how small is your world i mean i don't i personally do not pick friends based on their political affiliations otherwise i'd not have a lot of friends um <laughs> And, uh, you know, even like football clubs, like, you know, you, you, defining people by, I mean, of course, within reason, within reason, I think we've talked about this before, yep. um, you know, well, there's there's certain things that I, I draw a line on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if someone is a Labour supporter, I'm not going to not talk to them. If someone's a Conservative, I'm not going to not talk to them. If someone's a Liberal Democrat, I'm not, not going to speak. You know, it's very silly. You don't define people by by just their political beliefs or if they're religious or they're not religious or they're this or they're that or they're, you know, like this is not how you, it's it's not it's not a way to live, really. Yeah. Um, you, you, again, you live a very limited life. Yeah, but we'll we'll have a proper conversation about that at uh, at a later point because I really want to jump into that and uh, and analyze it a lot. Um, but just a couple more points on on this because yeah, I, we always hear reports about these COP conferences and because you you were actually there, you would have felt what it was like. Um, but just two points, and I'd love for you then to to tell me how that may or may not have influenced the the general atmosphere, uh, even though you can't compare it to any other COP um, events, because I think this was your first one, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. OK, but I mean, about almost 2,500 lobbyists were given access yeah. to COP28, which is, which yeah. is a, record, a record number. Um, and for me, it's ridiculous. But anyway, that's what happened. Um, and the second point is a lot of those lobbyists, especially the ones out of the US, since the turn of this year, have spent millions spreading confusing misinformation about the global energy market um, and also the impact of phasing out fossil fuels. Should that not serve as some kind of an indicator as to the dangers of allowing these kinds of lobby groups not only access to these debates, but thereafter the way that they manipulate the information. Yes, but by the way, everybody yeah. knew everybody knew the jig like was up. I mean, it, it, this, this by the way, none of what you're saying was people. Everybody was aware of what was going on at COP as well. It was the it was like the highlight of of the of most conversations, especially in the sort of um, sort of activist community. So none of this is new. We all know that um, there was a lot. Of, there's a lot of um, greenwashing and, and glossing over. Should is there a role for the UNF Triple C to sort of take a more serious role in, in determining how um, registrations are approved and so on? Absolutely, but it is very challenging because um, sometimes, I mean, of course, there's official organisations that um, have um, direct association and can get passes. Uh, but then some people come in and, and are registered through a separate organization. So you might not necessarily know, you might think that they're part of this organization, but actually they represent another organization. Um, and so it's very hard to monitor these things. But I mean, everyone's aware of, uh, everyone's aware. And it's, and I don't think anyone's living under an illusion of, of what's real and what's not. I will say to you, I would say, and I, and I would you know, my, my personal feeling on this is let's stop subsidizing the oil and gas industry. 
let's start um, investing heavily into renewables. Yes, there is a transition that needs to take place. We can't just switch off and then go into, you know, it's 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 not realistic. Um, but we need to start investing heavily into that transition period and 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 what comes next. Um, the the challenge is that we don't have one solid alternative that's going to solve our problems. Um, and and that is a real challenge, um, you know, whatever way you look at it. Um, and the world does need to keep moving. And that's, again, a reality that um, a reality that um, one of the major factors that we're um, we're facing. And so there's a desire to obviously for certain industries to stay in the game. Um, but there is also sometimes this approach of oversimplifying the challenges um, when it's not as simple as it may seem. And sometimes, you know, you can overcome these quite easily. And then other times it's not as it's not as simple as that. And again, it goes back to the big issue, which is that it's various different countries all negotiating um, with their own agendas in mind, with um, thinking about what's at stake for their economies, what's at stake for their ability to stay in power. You know, let's not forget about that, but also the people. Um, so some leaders are thinking about their people. Some may not be. Um, but, um, you know, this is this is it, it's a very complex um, it's a very complex situation. But do you just as I said before about ignoring countries, do you just ignore an entire industry and, and push forward? You can't do it because we are we, we are dependent on them as well. And we need to bring them. We need to bring them with us, but we need to find a way to put this as something in their interest. Um, and that comes through the policymakers. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, most of the policymakers have been uh, funded by um, the, the organizations, the companies, which um, invariably are the bad guys in this. The oil producers, the automotive industry and, and plastics and so on. Um, and, and they provide a lot of the funding for uh, campaigns and so on. Um, so they have a direct influence on policies. So, um, well, yeah, I, you know what? It, it's mm -hmm. not just that. It's the who's the loudest. I mean, I've I've been in situations where I've seen that you expect we expect our policymakers to really understand the issues. We expect them to be knowledgeable about all these various different big issues. And in fact, they aren't. Um, I, I can't say where, but I was privy to something recently where um, a, a, you know, a potential political candidate didn't know where um, this country was in the world and assumed it was in Africa. I mean, and it was like nowhere near that, nowhere near the African continent. So, I mean, that just that I think that just summarizes to you about how much knowledge is missing. Um, and you know, as you say, whoever A shouts the loudest or B puts together the most compelling evidence, um, you know, gets heard um, or seen. So, yeah. yeah. Or, or who pays for more advertising or who owns more media yeah. and so on. But, is it, we could talk about this to our heart's content. Um, yeah, but I mean, look, you know, and, and, and sometimes we need to think about uh, going back to partnerships. How can we work together? How hmm. can we make this mutually beneficial for all parties um, mm. because let's also not forget something and I think again a lot of these companies employ huge workforces you know they're they're literally you know they're an integral part of, of an economy and these people also need to be reskilled and transitioned into new roles we're having these major revolts because the world is moving at a rapid pace and we're not able to transition as quickly as we need to, to prepare for the next, for this new revolution we're living in. And that is just as important. Um, so as I say, it's multifaceted, it's challenging. Um, we we need to find a way to make sure that we're not leaving people behind as well, because that was the big thing that I think that was, I think that's been one of the big takeaways we've seen from the, from the tumultuous sort of political era where we've been living in over the last decade is that um, we we failed to address the big issues and we are where we are today because of that. No, no, I completely agree. Um, I, I, I think everything that you said is there is correct. 
Um, obviously, because of our sort of alternate political perspectives, we both look at the same thing, but from from a different with a different viewpoint. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think these organisations do employ lots of people and underpay them. Um, I think these organisations paid very well. Some are, some are, um, yes, of course, um, but it really depends which uh, which end of the scale that we're looking at. Um, yeah. I, I think there are um, a lot of these organisations. I mean, I, I remember the last winter, um, the prices that lots of people had to pay, yeah. which for heating the m money that they didn't have. Um, and then halfway through 2023, yeah, they were all announcing their billion pound profits. And wow, they'd never made so much money. I'm not surprised because they screwed you know, the little guy and they so do it was, over and over again. And they're going to do the I'm same thing this year. And what's really scary is that they were saying at COP that so they like 60,000 people in Europe died because of extreme weather, right? Cold or warm. And I see this in Cyprus a lot. So, you know, um, I mean, I was just there and I was, I was I was talking to someone and I said to them, I said, how does the average person? Because Cyprus has always been somewhat expensive, but it's becoming even more expensive. And um Average rent has gone up. Salaries haven't really gone up. So you're not seeing, you know, I, I mean, the England is, 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 has the same challenge as well. I think it's a global challenge. But anyway, um, I was um, in Cyprus, it gets to the point where certain, you know, elderly people in the summer, because they don't want to pay for the air conditioning, um, you know, sadly pass away because um, of heat and um, others die because of cold because they don't want to turn on their heatings. I mean, it's 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 a very sad situation when people, you know, the, the most disadvantaged um, in our communities are the ones that are bearing the, the sort of brunt of, of climate change. So we need to figure out, we need to figure a way out of this and it's got to be done collectively. And we, you know, it's just like a workplace. You could work in an office, you don't have to like everybody, but you need to figure out how to work together. And everybody needs to figure out how to work together, whether you like them or not, because we're all in it together and everybody needs to do this together. It's not something that one country can carry forward or with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one common theme which often comes up, seeing as though you use the uh, simile of, uh, of of the office, um, one of the main uh, factors behind stress nowadays is poor management. Um, mm -hmm. And I think... The problem that I have with the uh, petrochemical companies and the way that they are kind of pushing forward yeah, their greenwashing and all of the activities that their lobby groups are advertising um, with regards to is that they are currently more or less running the show with regards to the access they have to political decision makers. And I think you're right. We do have to work with these organizations but we cannot have them leading the argument. No. We, we need no, them to be on the sidelines. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, I mean, a perfect example of this is the um, is a global plastics um, treaty that's being you know negotiated um, at the moment. So launched last year, um, the treaty negotiation process is obviously trying to come up with a with a global plastics treaty. Um, of course, it's led by countries, and in fact businesses some five businesses are very frustrated because they're on the sidelines they're not they're, you know they're not able to they're not privy to the sort of in inner discussions obviously the ngo community is there the philanthropic community is there um but it is it's the ambition is to kind of make sure that you're getting something that's robust now how that process is going at the moment um i would say i, I have mixed feelings about it however it's something that um it's something that uh, it, this is a very important element of it. But then you also have to you, we have to demand better from our politicians as people. Absolutely. Uh, we, we need to get in the right kind of leadership. You look around you today uh, and, you know, you struggle <laughs> to see good leadership. And by the way, in any not, country, in any in, country, in, in most countries. And again, all very subjective, because <laughs> what I consider good leadership yeah. Somebody else will think it's not good leadership, True. but we Fair are struggling enough. with we're struggling with leadership. Um, but I am going to this is a plug in slightly, okay. um, but an excellent podcast that we launched, Boss Class, <clears throat> cannot recommend it enough. 
um, where um, one of our editors basically interviews various different business leaders around um, around the world, actually, um, trying to sort of um, learn how to be a better manager. Um, and I think that, you know, leadership, whether it's in whatever arena you're in, um, requires management and you need to know how to manage people and you need to know how to manage situations and you need to have the right people around you to give you the right advice. Don't get led astray. Don't fall into pressure, um, into peer pressure. You know, I always think back to Brexit and that was a perfect example of a leader that let the voices get the better of him. He knew better, but he... Um, we he, thought he knew better. Judging, if you're talking about the individual who's become um, foreign secretary, foreign secretary, yeah, okay, yeah, foreign secretary. You talk about that that idiot. Um, <laughs> I I'd hoped he he knew better. He clearly doesn't. Um, no, but, but anyway. I mean, he, he he fell prey to um, he fell prey to the voices. He he let people influence yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. The, the worms that ate his brain cells and uh, ha- have him talking out of his ass now, if you don't mind me saying. Anyway, okay. <laughs> I, I may decide to edit that out. I may decide not to edit it out. Anyway, but that's a different matter. Um, edit that out. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I've got that guy. Absolutely. Anyway, um, yeah, just about a couple more things. Um, and, and then I'll, I'll let you get on with your evening because you're probably tired as well. Um, but the USA and India... Um, plan on significant increases in oil production this year, mm-hmm. which, um, okay, I, I I understand development argument that um, people have put forward for countries such as India. Um, and so I, I, I do not, I definitely do not want to take the, the, the view that, uh, okay, the West has done all the shit that they've done, but you guys can't do it. But I, I, I don't think this significant increase in oil production is necessarily the best way forward. No. Um, and there needs to be uh, some other kind of uh, system introduced, which uh, allows uh, the world to share energy production far more fairly and in a way which will also benefit ca- countries such as India without forcing them to to, to undertake this, this kind of production increase. Um, the other issue that I have at the moment, you talked about football before. Right now, there is an event in Africa taking place called the African Cup of Nations. It's sponsored mm-hmm. by Total Energies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> you know, we, we see in, in, in England, in the Premier League, the, the impact of um, you know, oil uh, countries producing countries uh, on the game. The greenwashing just, you know, it is... Pushing forward, unabated, shamelessly, yeah. um, and it's turned me off the game. Um, I, I don't want to watch it anymore. It, it absolutely gets on my nerves. I can't possibly explain how much. Um, I mean, how can you stop this juggernaut um, of these organizations just taking over every sport, every facet of entertainment that they can get their grubby, dirty hands on? Um it, well, it's regulation. Criminal. Regulation. There's got to be standard. Listen, I I saw the other day my friend posted this, and I was like, well, what is this about? I read that FA, FKA Twigs, which is um, she's a musician, and I think she's also an actress, and she was in a Calvin Klein ad. The advertising authorities in the UK banned an advert of hers for a Calvin Klein a Calvin Klein ad that she was in, um, because it sort of I don't know it upset two people complained or something like that. Anyway, it's a photo of her. Um, You know, she's not, I mean, she's naked, but you don't see her naked body. You just see the side of her sort of, you know, one side of her um, her sort of boob and um, the side boob. And then of course the legs. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a phenomenal photo in my opinion. Um, And she's wearing this shirt. And then um, she, she called out the advertising, uh, the advertising standard authorities because um, there's at the same time, there's this um, male model. I think he's an actor um, who's running the same Calvin Klein ads alongside hers. And he's just wearing like sort of white, white tighty boxes, Calvin Klein boxes, and he's half naked. And but he's full frontal and you can see the bulge. Um, mm-hmm. And she's like the double standards are ridiculous. Right. So if the evidence and standard authorities can weigh in on something as, as so, in my opinion, moronic as this, like embrace this wonderful body because this woman's body is like, you know, 
it's it's not a standard it's not you know your it's not a slender figure it's it's a it's a tone figure it's a body that's sort of been through things um if they're if they're so offended by that and they can weigh in on that then they can weigh in on other things and i'm not saying the asa can but other similar like organizations like um the premier league they have a responsibility to ensure that um you know that um what's being put out is is based on the values of of the organizations and the clubs uh, unfortunately though money is a big issue and um these clubs need a lot of money and there's only a handful of type of organizations that are going to provide you with that money and that's why they they sort of go to these people it's an um, again regulation would help regulate this <laughs> Um, mm. But I don't know if it's realistic, given the fact that um, these are the guys that are willing to put their hands in their pockets. I mean, I just saw that the British Museum accepted 50 million from BP for the renovations of the British Museum. And, you know, I'm a bit flabbergasted because I, I do personally think I'm not going to compare this to sports. But if the British Museum had approached a couple of foundations, they could have very quickly raised 50 million to do those renovations. They didn't need BP to pay for it. Um, they just needed better people in their in their organization to go out and request for that funding. Uh, but it's easier to go to BP, who's just going to give you one big chunk of 50 million rather than dealing with five different donors um, and them giving you, you know, a million, a few million here, a few million there, a few million here. Um, but with sports, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. I don't really know how you address that, but it's always been a challenge. Marlborough used to sponsor, Philip Morris used to sponsor um, F1 and the the drinks industry sponsors them. I mean, these are the these are the kinds of companies that have the money want to. And also, it's it's uh, I don't know. I yeah. I don't really I don't I don't have an answer for you on this. Yeah, it would have been um, unfair to have expected uh, a conclusive uh, suggestion from you to completely change an industry. But, um, but yeah, I on. would say to you, maybe ask yeah. your audience what they think. Ask your audience what they think, oh, and word. let's let's uh, crowdsource and and see what other what other ideas people have. I don't, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't have a you know other than regulation, I don't really have anything else to yeah. um uh, as a solution. Yeah, that's fair enough. And, and but I appreciate that because it's uh, a, a, according to the reputation of socialism, that's a very socialist uh, suggestion. So um, I'll take that from you. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Tatiana, thank you very much for uh, being such a sport. Um, and um, yeah, we really have to get that uh, capitalism versus socialism uh, um, um, yeah, debate on uh, in 2024. So I'll be in touch um, and we can get that sorted. Yeah, that will that will be an exciting conversation. It will either descend into chaos or not. <laughs> Uh, I, I I will retain the power of the edit, but uh, I will be as fair to you um, as, as always. So yeah. now I'm worried. No, don't worry <laughs> about it. It's all good. Thanks, Tan. Um, it's great speaking with you. Well done. Thanks. Seriously, respect to all of the projects, um, all of the the things that you've achieved, um, and for the things that you are going to achieve. Um, all thank the best you, to you. Thank you. Exact same to you, and thank you for having me. Um, always, a, it's always lovely catching up with you. And uh, more sooner rather than later, I'd say, for the next one. Two and a mic.